All right. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 2, please. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17 through 18, and the message is entitled, Paul, the Joyful Servant. Paul has called the Philippians to practical obedience through sanctification after the example of Christ, as we've seen in verses 14 through 15. We said there that is rooted in proper attitude in verse 14, is the process of godly character in verse 15, and is the product of a transformed life in 16. So Paul is going to provide three men to show the reality of what he has just asked after the example of Christ. First, himself, verse 17 and 18. Second, Timothy, 19 to 24. And then Epaphroditus from 25 to 30. So Paul revealed... He modeled the example of Christ in his Christian service to the Philippians, evident by three things here in verses 17 and 18. Let me read. He says, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And so Paul here, the model of Christ, he understands he's not boasting. He's saying, look at what I am doing. Look at what Christ is doing in me, the model. And so his Christian service here to the Philippians is the parallel. And it's evident by the following things. First, Paul was living, a living sacrifice for the Philippians. Verse 17, the first portion. A living sacrifice for the Philippians. Secondly, Paul lived to serve the Philippians. The rest of 17. And then thirdly, Paul loved to rejoice with the Philippians. And so, first thing Paul says is that he is a living sacrifice for the Philippians. Listen to his words. Yes, and I am being poured out as a drink offering. Now, the Apostle Paul saw his life as being used for the purpose of God, listen, at all times. This should be our perspective. The many were born again, you're not your own. God wants to use you at all times, everywhere. Paul expressed his confident enthusiasm here, affirming about his ministry to the Philippians by the words, yes. That he had not run or labored in vain by the word yes. The word yes is looking back to that previous verse. It's a conjunction, not contrasting, but rather affirming his well worth running and laboring. Yes. Notice Paul described his present condition pouring out himself as being used by God. In other words, God doesn't pour you. God doesn't force you. 
God tells you he wants to do that, but you must do it yourself. You must yield to him. He forces no one. So the phrase there poured out speaks of a libation or drink offering that um, is about a, a cup or a glass of wine that amount that was poured over the sacrifice after you made the sacrifice or at the foot of the altar in devotion to God, both of them. This was practiced both by pagans and by the Jews in the law. The indicative present mental voice here indicates, again, Paul as the one pouring out his life and includes the future for the Philippians here through Christ. So he was doing it the present, it's a present active, and it will continue to do so. This, was, this is what he did. Death is implied here by the sacrifice, yet it doesn't contradict the assurance that he had that he was going to be released from prison in chapter 1, verse 19 and 25. He's under real danger. The drink offering was mentioned in the Old Testament with the burn offering. You know, the burn offering was um, uh, completely burned up at the altar. It meant complete dedication and consecration to God. So it was completely consumed. In Leviticus 23, 12, and 13, it says, Its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephod, a fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord Yahweh for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hymn. So you would offer the, the lamb or the goat, whatever you were offering, then you would pour that um, portion of wine over it. And this was a burnt offering that it accompanied. In the book of Numbers, in Numbers 15, 8 through 10, it says that when you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a peace offering to the Lord, then shall he offer with a young bull a grain offering of ten, three-tenths of an ephod and a fine flour mixed with half of a hen of oil, and you shall bring as a drink offering half a hymn of wine, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So we see that this was a practice of the Old Testament. Paul, being a Jew, knowing the law, he brings it alongside. He gives this imagery that is very vivid to many of those who were Jews, but even to the pagans. They did these things so they could both identify with this. Now, this is not a sad picture due to his circumstances. But his next assignment, Paul is glad, Paul is joyful, Paul is not bummed out, he's celebrating. Remember in chapter 1 verse 12 he says, but I want you to know brethren that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Some were preaching Christ out of envy, some out of contention, some because they got turned on because Paul was preaching, they got bold, he says, I don't really care why they preach it, so they preach. No big deal. In Philippians 1.13, he says, So that it has become evident in the whole palace guard, the platorium guard, and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And in fact, some of the platorium guard had accepted the Lord. So Paul was excited, even though the circumstances looked bleak from the outside, even though they might have been really dangerous from within, but he's looking at it from the spiritual perspective as he belonged to God. 
as the example of Christ that he gave to them in chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. You see, it's unfair for me or you to ask anybody to do something that I'm not willing to do. That's one thing that makes a good boss. That you're never going to ask your employer to do anything that you wouldn't do. That's why it's good that you work from your bottom, from the bottom all the way up, so that when you get to the top, you know what it is to be at the bottom in all the different phases. And you understand. Paul's saying, I'm not asking of you anything that I haven't done or not doing. Because we both have the same capacities. The body at Philippi, we're born again. I'm born again. We have the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the mind of Christ. So we're in the same level and we can do it. Paul knew the Philippians were familiar with his life. He had committed himself to God as a living sacrifice from his conversion, as you know. In Acts 9, 6, he says, Lord, what would you want me to do on the Damascus Road? He's a Christian killer. He was on his way to kill some and take some to jail. His life got turned around. He had been in prison in Philippi for casting out demon out of that girl in Acts 16, 16 through 24. He now is in Rome in prison in defense of the gospel, as chapter 1 of Philippians 12 through 14 tells us. But he wasn't bummed. It wasn't bleak. It was his next assignment. Notice the apostle Paul saw his life. And he lifted his life. He saw it as entrusted to the God at all cost. At all times, now at all costs. Listen to the libation here. The drink offering would be totally consumed. So as it's poured onto the sacrifice, because the sacrifice is hot, the minute it hits it, you've barbecued before, steam. It just gets evaporated and goes upward, right? Paul had fled for his life from Damascus, as you remember, and he was lowered down in a basket outside the window there, and he scurried over to Jerusalem. The record is recorded for us in the book of Acts in chapter uh, 9, 22 through 26. The event was related to King Aretas, uh, who wanted to arrest Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven thirty-two to 33. And Paul had been stoned at Lystra also for preaching, and uh, the Lord brought him back to life. Once again, as recorded for us in the book of Acts, in Acts 14, 19 through 20, and the event was connected by Paul with having been caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. I knew a man in Christ about 13 years ago, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. He was caught up to the third heaven or paradise there. He saw and heard things unlawful to be uttered. And he ties them together. By the number of years and the event that takes place, he ties them together. Paul was told of a plot against his life by his nephew after he was assaulted in the temple, remember. So it's one thing after the other ever since he was born again. <laughs> From the very beginning. Again, this is recorded in the book of Acts 23, verse 14 through 16. And such occurred, and such occurrences were normal for Paul. And some of them are revealed to the Corinthians in very detail in chapter 1 of Second Corinthians, verse 8 through 11, where he despaired of life, and he thought that was it, I'm going to die, and the Lord was merciful and saved him and others. 
He gives a catalog of his sufferings in chapter 4, verse 7 through 12, and verse 16 through 18, another passage where he was in the sea two or three times. He was beat with rods and, and imprisoned and so on and so forth. All these things that happened to him. And he says, but you know, this is what we are. We're ambassadors for Christ. And you know, he's, but he's not discouraged or anything else. And, and when I'm weak, I'm strong. He tells us in Corinthians. Amazing. Now notice the Apostle Paul saw his life as pleasing to God. The drink offering would ascend up, as we said, the sweet aroma to God, an acceptable sacrifice. So this was also the case with the incense of the Old Testament that symbolized the petitions accepted by God. The aroma rose up to God who sees and hears all things. The acceptance was by the genuineness of the heart. God sees if what we do is genuine, sincerely in love for him, or we're just going through motions and we're not really being genuine. He understands this. The incense is the prayer of the saints. And it has the same kind of imagery here. Ascending up. In Psalm 141.2 it says, Let my prayer be set before you. As incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. John says in Revelation 5.8, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Paul the Apostle a few years down the road, even as he says here that he's being poured out, listen to what he says as he writes his last will and testament. I did a message that's entitled, Exiting Triumphantly. Listen. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. In the time of my departures at hand, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the race. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, our righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The very same words he's telling the Philippians right now, being assured that he's going to be released. He says the same things when he's sure his head's going to roll from his body. Now you want to listen to people like this. Because they're teaching from life experience. From being doers. He's not in the Marriott. Not in the Hyatt. In the Mamertine prison. Dark. Damp. Rat infested. Hmm. Paul commended such individuals. Listen to him. Indeed. I have all and abound. I am full having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice well pleasing to God. He says this in the Philippians 4.18. He commends men like Epaphroditus. Why? He's walking after the example of Christ that he's putting before him right now. You know, the cedar tree is a wonderful type of the Christian it grows by dying as it develops stately and beautiful 
putting forth new boughs and leaves. The old ones drop off to give strength to the new ones. Likewise, the saint lives to die and he dies to live. Same thing. How much of your living for self have you committed to dying since you've come to Christ? The things that um, distract you from the things of Christ. The things that defile you before Jesus. The things that detour you from obeying Jesus. Only I can answer that. Only you can answer that to yourself. Paul put it this way to the Romans in 12, 1 and 2. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is the good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Every moment, every day, I have to remind myself. I have to strive. How's your life being used to accomplish the will and the purposes of God? Jesus wants to use you to reach your family, your friends, your co-workers, or anyone else who he brings about. Sometimes we're just too busy, too much in a hurry, distracted. Jesus wants to use you to exhort others, to reprove, to admonish those in Christ. Whatever is necessary and needful. Jesus wants to use you as you grow, develop, and mature spiritually. Hebrews 5, 13-14 says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So you grow, develop, and mature on every level of your Christian growth. All the time, those three must be going on. How's your life pleasing to God? Go home tonight or tomorrow, you have some time, and write down areas that are displeasing to God in your life. Write them down. Get off somewhere alone. Ask Him to forgive you. Then ask Him to change them. Then obey the Word of God and live like you mean it. Then write down on another piece of paper areas that are pleasing to God in your life. Then thank Him for enabling you to be able to live such things. Continue to depend on Jesus for all things. And then guard those areas against the attack of Satan, the world and the flesh, your own sin nature. A double, a strength is a double weakness if you don't guard it. Weakness, as long as you know you're weak, you can be strong. You're not going to trust yourself. But when you think you're strong and you don't guard it, it becomes a double weakness. Paul, the Roman, said in 
Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The word lust there has not, is not exclusively of sexual things. It's of anything that has a strong drive and control and craving that really becomes an idol and takes the place of God or becomes something that defiles you before God. Either way. David prayed in Psalm 139, 23-24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So there's a prayer of request, examination, and then the response of willingness to obey when God reveals these things. And not to just ignore them. Or to just have an emotional moment. It's important. You see, Paul was a, a living sacrifice for the Philippians. Notice, secondly, in the rest of 17, Paul lived to serve the Philippians. Listen to his words. On the sacrifice and service of your faith. So the Apostle Paul had served the Philippians in preaching the gospel to them. Paul um, identified it as a sacrifice of service. The one article, the word the, is used for both words. They are contiguous and complementary. The word sacrifice refers to what is offered, often involving death, as we've mentioned. The word service was used for a public office undertaken by a citizen at his own expense, whether it be a, a concert, whether it be a play, or whatever it is, he will flip the bill. Paul was saying the costly sacrifice was no sacrifice but his pleasure. You ever do something because you just love the person? You want to just do that for the person? And they are so thankful. But you say, don't worry about it. Because there was no sweat to you. Even though it cost something, it, was, it didn't matter. That's what he's saying here. Paul did not depend on the church in Jerusalem or Antioch for support. Paul worked as a tent maker, as you know. To support himself and others. You find it in Acts chapter 18, 3 and 20, 24, 1 Corinthians 4, 12, 2 Thessalonians 3, 8, 9. Paul made his living making tents to provide for himself and others. He told the Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 14 through 15, you know, Corinthians were like spiritual teenagers, carnal. Um, I call it the emergent church of Paul's day. And um, he told the Corinthians that parents are to lay up for the children, not the children for the parents. He says, I will gladly spend and be spent, yet the more I love you, the less I be loved. Only parents understand that. We can understand that intellectually. When you're a parent, you understand that to the heart. Because you've gone through it with your kids at one time or another. Where you're trying to protect, you're trying to do everything, and they think that you're just trying to ruin their life. <laughs> the more I love you, the less I be loved. Why? Because you're not adult, you're not mature, you're not thinking of others, you're thinking of yourself. 
<clears throat> the word service there was used also for the service of the priest in prayer offered to God. You have it in Luke one twenty three with Zacharias and Hebrews nine twenty one for Jesus. Paul prayed for the believers, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. I'm sorry, chapter 1. And so he thanks God for them. Paul loved them. He says, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 8. Paul's prayers are found in his letters, even his desire for Israel to be saved as he wrote to the Romans. Brokenhearted that spiritual blindness in part had come upon them, even desiring and wishing that if he could be cursed that they might be saved. Whoa! Romans 9, 1 through 5. I haven't gotten there. I will not go to hell for you. I fall short of Paul. Amazing man. And he wasn't lying. Paul had been directed by God to go preach to Philippi as a sacrifice and service. In Acts 16, you remember, Paul and Silas were prohibited by the Holy Spirit to preach in Asia Minor. When they had gotten through Phrygia and the regions of Galatia, then they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. In Acts 16:6, After having come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them, and they passed Mysia, and they came to Troas in verse 7 and 8. And then Paul and Silas were directed by God in verse 9, a vision of a man from Macedonia. Stood there pleading with them, come over and help us. After having seen the vision, Luke writes, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Verse 10. Wow. See, that's effective ministry, directed ministry. Where they were going now to confirm those who accepted Christ and God begins to redirect their steps. They're moving, they're in motion. They're being sensitive to what God is doing. And then obeying when God reveals it to them, what to do, where to go. Paul arrived at Philippi ready to preach as a sacrifice of service. They sailed from Troas to Samothrace to Neapolis and arrived at Philippi in verse 11 and 12 of Acts 16. Traveling, you know, in those days wasn't fast and it wasn't safe. Yet they obeyed. In verse 13 through 15, on the Sabbath day, they went out to the city of, to the riverside where prayer was being made and encountered there some women and the Lord opened the heart of Lydia, a seller of purple from Thyatira, and saved her and her whole household. Paul didn't do that. God did that. 
Then a demon-possessed girl tried to promote them as the servants of God, so Paul cast out a demon, and her masters weren't too happy seeing the financial loss, and they accused them and brought them before the magistrates. They beat them, and they threw them in jail in verse 16 through 23. Paul and Silas in that cell, and that was an inner prison inside a prison, the most secure and the most profound deep down. They were worshiping God in that cell as prisoners were listening. So God brought an earthquake, and as you know, all the um, doors opened up, and the jailer, seeing that, took a sword, and he thought he'd kill himself because he thinking he had everybody who was gone, and under Rome, Rome would kill him. Paul says, do yourself no harm, we are all here. What does the jailer do? He goes before Paul, he falls trembling, on his knees, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And he and his entire household was saved in verse 24 through 34. Being poured out in a sacrifice of service from the very moment that he accepted Christ. Notice the apostle Paul saw his life as a sacrifice of service to the Philippians as Christians. The word faith refers to faith in Jesus Christ. The Greek has the article, the faith. The faith, the conviction of truth that Jesus died and rose from the dead to justify them by repentance. It's talking about Christianity. In chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, Paul said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making a request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He remembers then how God brought them, how God did the work, the difficulties, the suffering, persecution, all of those things, just like in Thessalonica. Incredible. Notice the, pro the pronoun yours, it's plural. Literally, the faith yours. Each person at Philippi had to believe in faith, repent and be saved. No one can be saved for you. The evidence of Paul's sacrifice and service of their faith was in the writing of the letter. Chapter 1, 3 through 11, exhorting them to, in their faith. Chapter 1, 12 through 18, instructing them of God's purposes. And 19 through 26 of chapter 1, comforting them for he would continue with them. 127 through 30, admonishing them to walk worthy of all times. Chapter 2, 1 through 11, providing a model of life in Christ. In verse 12 through 16 of chapter 2, calling them to practice obedience. He's serving them. Notice the example Paul was serving after was the very model of Christ that he had commanded them to follow in humility. He was willing to die if need be that Christ would be glorified in his body, whether by life or by death, he told them in chapter 1 verse 20. He wasn't murmuring, but informing them and instructing them in 2.14.
He ascribed only two verses to himself as the example of humility. Verse 17 and verse 24. He ascribed five verses to Timothy and six verses to Epaphroditus. Verse 19 through 23 and 25 through 30. He gave himself the least attention. Because what he says, we, we should have the interest of others. Isn't that the model of Christ? So it's not just words, but he models it even as he's ministering unto them. A story was told of Eric Barker, a British missionary who um, worked for more than 50 years in Portugal, giving himself to the Lord's work and the Lord that he loved. And during World War II, the situation became so dangerous that Barker was advised to take his family and return to England. Despite the warning, Eric Barker stayed in Portugal, but his wife and their eight children and his sister <clears throat> with her three children boarded a ship for home. Tragedy struck at sea. Their ship was torpedoed and all on board were killed. The tragic news reached Barker just before he was to step into the pulpit on Sunday morning. The brave man of God stood before the congregation and said softly, and I'm quoting, I've just received word that all my family has arrived safely home. After a moment of hushed silence, he went on with the service as usual. Unfeeling? No. By the grace of God, Barker could rise above his heartbreaking, overwhelming grief because he knew his loved ones were in the presence of the Lord. That's, um, that's what Christianity is about when those difficult times come, when um, we get cancer, when um, our loved ones is uh, murdered or tragedy strikes. Do we really believe what we've been uh, studying and telling others and um, been so fervent about? What would, you, what would discourage your service for God and cause you to stop serving the Lord Jesus? What would it take? What would be the limit? The loss of your wife? Husband? Maybe a son or a daughter. Matthew ten thirty seven. Jesus says, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Because the only way you can really love someone the way you should is first to love God. So now you can love them in the love of God. Maybe it's the loss of your health that would do it. Or your wealth house, your job. Again, Matthew 6, 32, 30, 20, 32 to 33 says, For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you. The priority. The vertical first. The horizontal will come. 
What would it take for you to begin to serve the Lord after the example of Christ? If your love for God is not the primary motive, every other motive is wrong. Many people serve because they want to be seen by others. They serve for whatever reason you fill in the blank. But if my service for God is not because I love God, then it's worthless. It's, there's no reward. There's nothing. If you will believe Jesus that he has given you certain spiritual gifts to edify the body, then obey him and step out. Be the church. If you do that, you will learn to trust God more than yourself and know that he does it all. Again, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10, through 10, Paul says, But we have this treasure in this earth and vessel that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of ourselves or us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despaired. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The J.B. Phillips, um, it's not a translation, it's a loose paraphrase. It says, I like that. He says, uh, knocked down, but not knocked out. I like that. Um, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Paul lived to serve the Philippians. Do you live to serve? That's the standard for a Christian. Every Christian, without exception. Notice thirdly, the end of 17 and 18. Paul loved to rejoice with the Philippians. The Apostle Paul rejoiced that God was using him to serve the Philippians, even at the expense of his life. Listen to his words. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul did not allow the grim situation of his life to determine God's love or concern for him. He didn't conclude or measure God's love by the circumstance, by the suffering, by the darkness. He always kept his eyes on the cross and when you saw his arms stretched out, people say, how can God love me? Look at his arms. The love of God for you and me is seen on the cross, nowhere else. So when things get dark, you look to the cross and you remember how much he loved you. He died for you. He paid the price for you. He bore God's wrath for you and for me. That's how much he loved you. God stated a statement of fact. The word glad means to be joyful for with them on their behalf. The word rejoice means to take part of another person's joy. Both are the indicative present active continuously. He is glad and rejoicing with them as one of them, not superior to them, yet serving them. 
The disciple says, Jesus said, you call me Lord and rightly so, for I am your Lord and Master. Then he gave him the example. He took a bowl and towel and washed their feet. Wow. He knew he was called to suffer many things for Christ. He knew God was using him. He knew God loved him. Notice Paul allowed what he knew about God and his calling to keep his thoughts in line with God. This was a commitment to warfare. This was understanding spiritual warfare. This was the next battle in warfare. Paul was glad and rejoiced with the Philippians in what God had done and in what God was doing. In no way or at any time did Paul compare himself <clears throat> to anyone else or boast beyond the limits of God had appointed him to do or to fulfill. But rejoice because he knew God had directed him to them. He makes this very clear when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13, that he never went beyond measures. He preached Christ where Christ was never preached. He didn't move into anybody's territory. He, he, God led him. God directed. God guided him. So he knew that he was on target with God. Wow. Peter had to learn this also, as Jesus told Peter, his martyrdom when he was older, and that he would bring glory to God. When he was young, he went where he will. When you're old, they're going to take you somewhere you're not going to like. And what does Peter do? Listen to him. John 21, 19 through 22. And when Jesus had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. And then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, meaning John, following, who also had learned on his, leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, is the one who, who, who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So he just told Peter, when you're old, they're going to crucify you upside down. And that's how the tradition tells us, okay? And Peter said, well, how about John? He says, don't worry about him. But what if I decide that he's going to stick around until I come back again? And then a rumor started that John was never going to die. Who started? Peter did. <laughs> Nothing new, is it? Notice the apostle Peter requested them to rejoice with him now. He's rejoicing with them and for them. Now he says, rejoice with me. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul wanted them to see and accept the eternal purposes of God as joy, not tragedy. The fact that he was as a drink offering, a sacrifice, a service for their faith. The fact that he was rejoicing in his situation of service. The point was that for this very reason, Paul wanted them to be glad. He uses the same word as in verse 17, glad to be joyful for him on his behalf now, as he was on their behalf. But now it is an imperative command. Present active. He wanted to bring them up to a 
level of joy of his. He wanted to bring them up. He wanted them to rejoice as much as he was rejoicing, even though he was the recipient of what they thought wasn't that good. <laughs> wow. He wanted them to obey him. So he tells them to rejoice with him in God's incredible ways and wisdom for his life. Hmm. The word rejoice again is the second imperative. Again, is the same uh, as the one before in verse 17, but the present active there. Uh, here's a, an imperative command con constantly, continuously. So he expresses and declares the fact, now he commands it of them. He says, here's where I am. You come up here, I command you. You get up here on the same level. Wow. Take part with my joy. Mm -hmm. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit, as you know, in Galatians 5.22. Agape love. First manifestation, joy. Joy is a key word for this epistle and its cognates appearing more than, I think, 16, 17 times as you go through this epistle. It's known as the epistle of joy. But the joy was Paul's, not the Philippians. <laughs> the problem with them was disunity, self-centeredness. That's why they didn't have the joy. You remember Nehemiah said to the people, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Because some of the older guys were looking at the foundation of the temple and they didn't think it was very nice compared to Solomon's. And the young people were saying, Oh, yeah, we have come. They're just all buzzed. And, you know, they're robbing the joy. Because you know what? Temple of Zerubbabel that we're, we've been studying with Haggai and Zechariah. That, at that time, that was the best temple to that day. You know why? It was the next temple. The past didn't matter. This is where we can get messed up. All oh, the good old, no, no, those good old days are bad. They're gone. They're not the best. Today is the best day. Because it's the next day. We judge best by if it's going good or bad. It's best because it's next. And the next day, prepare me for the next day. And the next day. And the next day. Can you rejoice when others are getting blessed more than you? I don't know why he's doing that. They knew who he was. Like I know him. I know him. When others are being blessed financially or materially. When others are getting a job and you're having a very difficult time. You haven't worked for a long time. When your friends are getting married all around you and you're still single. God hasn't brought somebody. Hmm. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Can you rejoice when others receive the benefit while you incur the cost? When someone has done 
you wrong morally, ethically, or sexually. And they ask your forgiveness. And when you impart the forgiveness, you suffer the loss and absorb it for the love of God. Wow. When you as a parent work so hard for your children, they might have a better life than you. And they do get the better life. Do you begrudge it after the fact? No, you rejoice. You do it all over again because of the love for your children. They're getting started. You're on your way out. Doesn't matter. I don't need much. <laughs> when you help a brother or sister and it costs you time and money at your own expense, do you do it with joy? Serving them. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, likewise a Levite. And he arrived at the place, came and looked, and passed on to the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him into the inn. And he took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come back again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise, Luke ten thirty one to 37 the Good Samaritan. He was willing to absorb the cost without complaining. Hmm. Can you rejoice because it is God's will in spite of the circumstance or outcome in your life? Like Joseph in Egypt. Like Daniel in the palace of Susa. Like Job who lost everyone and everything except his wife. Wow. Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God. Commit their souls to him in doing good. As to a faithful creator. 1 Peter 4.19 That's what Christianity is about, ladies and gentlemen. Not how good we look when we come in, not who we know, not how much we laugh, but how much we serve the Lord and others. Hmm. Paul loved to rejoice with the Philippians. This was Paul's example. Example of Christ. Paul was a living sacrifice. Paul lived to serve. And Paul loved to rejoice all with the Philippians.
Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We thank you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord, for your goodness to every one of us. What you've done from the day that we accepted you, Lord, how you've been so merciful and so good to us. We pray, Lord, that we would respond in kind. We would lift our hearts to you, that you would do a greater work in our lives. From this night on, Lord, as we yield to you, as we seek you more. And then, Lord, our lives would glorify you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be over the Internet or you might be listening over the radio somewhere in the world. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He paid the price for you. He cast every authority that opposed him apart. And he fulfilled that sacrifice. And the acceptance of that payment was the resurrection. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, you can be saved. It's called a prayer of repentance. No one can repent for you. You must repent for yourself. And Christ will forgive you and he will give you eternal life and give you his Holy Spirit and a divine nature to be able to look to him, depend upon him, to be transformed from day to day, from glory to glory. If this is your desire, this is a prayer of repentance you can say right now and he will forgive you and save you right where you sit right now or wherever you are in the world. This is your prayer to Jesus. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.